0: Episode 4. The most important element in dealing with the terrible and the inexplicable is to be able to put an interpretive framework around it, to give it meaning. Giving things meaning makes them comprehensible, and perhaps even manageable. And if that doesn't reduce our fears, it at least gives us reason to hope. It's tempting to think that our attempts at explaining natural phenomena are better and more scientific than those of the 17th century, But while it's certainly true that we've developed powerful mathematical and experimental tools for analyzing the world, we're no less prone than our forebears to create comprehensive systems of meaning that are not dependent on empirical evidence alone. In this chapter, Defoe speaks of the attempts of his contemporaries to see in the heavens, or in clouds, or through the interpretation of dreams, confirmation of what everyone believes, that the plague is a visitation by God and a judgment on the city. Defoe believes this as well, clearly, but he's openly skeptical, even scornful, of the attempts of astrologers, fortune-tellers, and others to play upon people's fears for their own gain. but now I must go back again to the beginning of this surprising time. While the fears of the people were young, they were increased strangely by several odd accidents, which, put all together, it was really a wonder the whole body of the people did not rise as one man and abandon their dwellings, leaving the place as a space of ground designed by heaven for an akeldama, doomed to be destroyed from the face of the earth, and that all that would be found in it would perish with it, I shall name but a few of these things, but sure they were so many, and so many wizards and cunning people propagating them, that I have often wondered there was any, women especially, left behind. In the first place, a blazing star or comet appeared for several months before the plague, as there did the year after another, a little before the fire. The old women and the phlegmatic hypochondriac part of the other sex whom I could almost call old women too, remarked, especially afterward, though not until both those judgments were over, that those two comets passed directly over the city, and that so very near the houses that it was plain they imported something peculiar to the city alone, that the comet before the pestilence was of a faint, dull, languid color, and its motion very heavy, solemn, and slow but that the comet before the fire was bright and sparkling, or, as others said, flaming, and its motion swift and furious, and that, accordingly, one foretold a heavy judgment, slow but severe, terrible and frightful, as was the plague, but the other foretold a stroke, sudden, swift, and fiery as the conflagration. Nay, so particular some people were, that as they looked upon that comet preceding the fire, they fancied they not only saw it pass swiftly and fiercely, and could perceive the motion with their eye, but even they heard it, that it made a rushing mighty noise, fierce and terrible, though at a distance, and but just perceivable. I saw both these stars. And I must confess, had so much of the common notion of such things in my head, that I was apt to look upon them as the forerunners and warnings of God's judgments, and especially when, after the plague had followed the first, I yet saw another of the like kind, I could not but say God had not yet sufficiently scourged the city. But I could not at the same time carry these things to the height that others did knowing, too, that natural causes are assigned by the astronomers for such things, and that their motions and even their revolutions are calculated, or pretended to be calculated, so that they cannot be so perfectly called the forerunners or foretellers, much less the procurers, of such events as pestilence, war, fire, and the like. But let my thoughts and the thoughts of the philosophers be, or have been, what they will, these things had a more than ordinary influence upon the minds of the common people, and they had almost universal melancholy apprehensions of some dreadful calamity and judgment coming upon the city, and this principally from the sight of this comet, and the little alarm that was given in December by two people dying at St. Giles, as above. The apprehensions of the people were likewise strangely increased by the error of the times, In which, I think, the people, from what principle I cannot imagine, were more addicted to prophecies and astrological conjurations, dreams, and old wives' tales than ever they were before or since. Whether this unhappy temper was originally raised by the follies of some people who got money by it, that is to say, by printing predictions and prognostications, I know not, but certain it is books frighted them terribly such as Lily's Almanac, Gadbury's Astrological Predictions, Poor Robin's Almanac, and the like. Also several pretended religious books, one entitled, Come Out of Her, My People, Lest You Be Partakers of Her Plague, another called Fair Warning, another Britain's Remembrancer, and many such, all, or most part of which, foretold directly or covertly the ruin of the city nay, some were so enthusiastically bold as to run about the streets with their oral predictions, pretending they were sent to preach to the city. And one in particular, who, like Jonah to Nineveh, cried in the streets, Yet forty days, and London shall be destroyed. I will not be positive whether he said yet forty days, or yet another few days. Another ran about naked, except a pair of drawers around his waist, crying day and night like a man that Josephus mentions, who cried, Woe to Jerusalem, a little before the destruction of that city. So this poor naked creature cried, O oh, the great and dreadful God, and said no more, but repeated those words continually, with a voice and countenance full of horror, a swift pace, And nobody could ever find him to stop or rest or take any sustenance, at least that I ever could hear of. I met this poor creature several times in the streets and would have spoken to him, but he would not enter into speech with me or anyone else, but held on his dismal cries continuously. These things terrified the people to the last degree, especially when, two or three times, as I have mentioned already, they found one or two in the bills dead of the plague at St. Giles. Next to these public things were the dreams of old women, or, I should say, the interpretation of old women upon other people's dreams. And these put abundance of people even out of their wits. Some heard voices warning them to be gone, for that there would be such a plague in London, so that the living would not be able to bury the dead. Others saw apparitions in the air, and I must be allowed to say of both, I hope, without breach of charity, that they heard voices that never spake, and saw sights that never appeared. But the imagination of the people was really turned wayward and possessed. And no wonder, if they who were pouring continually at the clouds saw shapes and figures, representations and appearances, which had nothing in them but air and vapor. Here, they told us, they saw a flaming sword, held in a hand coming out of a cloud, with a point hanging directly over the city. There they saw hearses and coffins in the air, carrying to be buried, and there again heaps of dead bodies lying unburied, and the like, just as the imagination of the poor terrified people furnished them with matter to work upon. So hypochondriac fancies represent ships, armies, battles in the firmament, Till steady eyes the exhalations solve, and all to its first matter cloud resolve. I could fill this account with the strange relations such people gave every day of what they had seen, and every one was so positive of their having seen what they pretended to see that there was no contradicting them without breach of friendship, or being accounted rude and unmannerly on the one hand, and profane and impenetrable on the other. One time, before the plague was begun, otherwise than, as I have said in St. Giles, I think it was in March, seeing a crowd of people in the street, I joined with them to satisfy my curiosity, and found them all staring up in the air to see what a woman told them appeared plain to her, which was an angel clothed in white, with a fiery sword in his hand, waving it, or brandishing it over his head. She described every part of the figure to the life, showed them to the motion and the form, and the poor people came into it so eagerly and with so much readiness. Yes, I see it all plainly, says one. There's the sword as plain as can be. Another saw the angel. One saw his very face and cried out what a glorious creature he was. One saw one thing and one another. I looked as earnestly as the rest, but perhaps not with so much willingness to be imposed upon, and I said, indeed, that I could see nothing but a white cloud, bright on one side by the shining of the sun upon it. The woman endeavoured to show it me, but could not make me confess that I saw it, which, indeed, if I had, I must have lied. But the woman, turning upon me, looked in my face, and fancied I laughed in which her imagination deceived her too for i really did not laugh but was very seriously reflecting how the poor people were terrified by the force of their own imagination however she turned from me called me profane fellow and a scoffer told me that it was a time of god's anger and dreadful judgments were approaching and that despisers such as i should wander and perish the people about her seemed disgusted as well as she And I found there was no persuading them that I did not laugh at them, and that I should be rather mobbed by them than be able to undeceive them. So I left them, and this appearance passed for as real as the blazing star itself. Another encounter I had in the open day also, and this was in going through a narrow passage from Petty France into Bishopsgate churchyard by a row of almshouses. There are two churchyards to Bishopsgate church or parish. One we go over to pass from the place called Petty France into Bishopsgate Street, coming out just by the church door. The other is on the side of the narrow passage where the almshouses are on the left, and a dwarf wall with a palisado on it on the right hand, and the city wall on the other side more to the right. In this narrow passage stands a man looking through between the palisados into the burying place and as many people as the narrowness of the passage would admit to stop, without hindering the passage of others, and he was talking mightily eagerly to them, and pointing now to one place, then to another, and affirming that he saw a ghost walking upon such a gravestone there. He described the shape, the posture, and the movement of it so exactly, that it was the greatest matter of amazement to him in the world, that everybody did not see it as well as he ON A SUDDEN HE WOULD CRY, THERE IT IS NOW, IT COMES THIS WAY, THEN TIS TURNED BACK, TILL AT LENGTH HE PERSUADED THE PEOPLE INTO SO FIRM A BELIEF OF IT, THAT ONE FANCIED HE SAW IT, AND ANOTHER FANCIED HE SAW IT, AND THUS HE CAME EVERY DAY MAKING A STRANGE hubbub, CONSIDERING IT WAS IN SO NARROW A PASSAGEWAY, TILL BISHOP'S GATE CLOCK STRUCK ELEVEN, AND THEN THE GHOST WOULD SEEM TO START, AND, AS IF HE WERE CALLED AWAY, Disappeared on a sudden. I looked earnestly every way, and at the very moment that this man directed, but could not see the least appearance of anything. But so positive was this poor man that he gave the people the vapours in abundance, and sent them away trembling and frighted, till at length few people that knew of it cared to go through that passage, and hardly anybody by night on any account whatever. This ghost, as the poor man affirmed made signs to the houses and to the ground and to the people plainly intimating or else they so understanding it that abundance of the people should come to be buried in that churchyard as indeed happened but that he saw such aspects i must acknowledge i never believed nor could i see anything of it myself though i looked most earnestly to see it if possible These things served to show how far the people were really overcome with delusions, and as they had a notion of the approach of a visitation, all their predictions ran upon a most dreadful plague, which should lay the whole city and even the kingdom waste, and should destroy almost all the nation, both man and beast. To this, as I said before, the astrologers added stories of the conjunctions of planets in a malignant manner and with a mischievous influence, one of which conjunctions was to happen, and did happen, in October, and the other in November, and they filled the people's heads with predictions on these signs of the heavens, intimating that those conjunctions foretold drought, famine, pestilence. In the first two of them, however, they were entirely mistaken, for we had no droughty season, but in the beginning of the year a hard frost, which lasted from December almost to March, and after that moderate weather, rather warm than hot, with refreshing winds, and, in short, very seasonable weather, and also several very great rains.